Hello there, folks. Greetings and welcome to another episode of the Undercover Bubble Podcast. My name's Patrick Moore, I'm your host, and I want to thank you all for being with me today to take a deep dive into this interesting thing that we call the conservative media bubble. Now, today is August 8th, 2020. We have less than 100 days to go before the presidential election. So um, there should be a lot of things about that in the news, you'd think, these days. But there's been really one thing that sort of dominated international media over the last week, and that was the absolutely horrific explosion that we saw in Beirut, Lebanon on Tuesday. But if you're following the conservative media bubble, you would almost think that it didn't really happen. And that's sort of the one thing that I've noticed about the bubble this week is that it's really sort of been business as usual, as opposed to when something big happens stateside, they're usually at least reporting on it. But my theory is that because this didn't happen in the United States, especially because no Americans were hurt or killed in the explosion, the conservative media bubble just doesn't consider it important. If it wasn't America, it might as well not have happened. And the day that the explosion happened on Tuesday, I went around to all the conservative media outlets and just tried to see how they were reporting this explosion. And what I found was both completely not surprising and very worrisome, kind of a little scary. So the first place I checked was Fox News. I turned on the TV on Fox News and... I can't remember what they were talking about, probably something having to do with the pandemic, but I can tell you what they weren't talking about. They weren't talking about that explosion. And in fact, when I went on Fox News's website, there was no coverage of the explosion anywhere to be found on the front page of the site. And keep in mind that this explosion, if you haven't seen the video of it, it's absolutely unbelievable it's huge it's insane it creates its own mushroom cloud that's how big the explosion is you can actually see the air displacing around the explosion in a big old cloud and then just the pressure wave completely annihilating everything in its path and i mean i'm not going to go into more detail about it but it's absolutely devastating and killed a whole bunch of people wounded thousands basically destroyed the entire downtown area. And now there's actually demonstrations in Beirut basically calling for the government to step down because the apparent cause of this was that there was about 2,700 tons of confiscated ammonium nitrate from a Russian ship like five or six years ago sitting in the port. And right next door, there happened to be a fireworks factory. So you could imagine that's just... For lack of a better analogy, that is a powder keg just waiting to be lit. And on Tuesday it was. And the resulting explosion was absolutely horrific and tragic. And so now, a lot of people in Beirut are actually protesting angrily and calling basically for the government to step down because of that irresponsibility that they showed in letting this happen. But the interesting thing is, once the protest started, once people started throwing debris back at the government troops, that's when Fox News started paying attention. Because the first report that I saw 
and I've been watching Fox News all week. The first real reporting that I saw from Fox News on this subject, on the explosion, was earlier today when one of the reporters there sort of went down to the protests and showed what they were doing, showed them yelling at the government and holding up signs. And most importantly, they showed them picking up pieces of the debris from the explosion and throwing it at the government troops. And to me, this says a lot about Fox's priorities as a network when they choose to report on this only after violence starts. But before I get to that, let me just go down the list of all the other sites that I visited hoping to find a story in the conservative bubble about this explosion. And surprise, surprise, spoiler alert, almost none of them had anything. So in any case, I went to The Federalist, who, to be clear, is not really so much of a news organization as sort of an opinion-shaping one. They didn't have anything about it. It was all just domestic stuff about Joe Biden and Ghislaine Maxwell. Uh, Breitbart, I went to, who does claim to be a news organization, they had absolutely nothing on it whatsoever. Not even when I went to their world section. And this was, this was not like right after the explosion happened. This was a good probably five, six hours after the story first popped up on my phone. So, you know, plenty of time to look at it, investigate it, and write a short piece on it for any journalist. And Breitbart had nothing, not even in the world section. Daily Caller did have a story on it, but it wasn't a story on the explosion itself so much as Trump coming out immediately and saying that he thought it was an attack and he thought the explosion was caused by a bomb of some kind. So again, no surprise there. I'm actually impressed that they even reported on it at all. But again, that goes back to what I said in the last episode about how the conservative media bubble always needs you to be afraid of something. Be afraid! But the interesting thing is there was one website that actually had a story on the explosion that was relatively free of partisanship or slanting or skewing or any sort of classic conservative media bubble tactics, really. Like it was just a straight-up story with the facts of what happened and that they're investigating it. And the one website that had a story like that was Trump's new, brand-new favorite organization, One America News Network. So I guess credit to One America News Network for actually doing some real reporting on something that was important in the world and not skewing it. Of course, when you look at pretty much everything else that's on their website, it's absolutely just shoving people into that conservative media bubble. But for that one story, it was on their front page. I did have to scroll down a bit to get to it, and it was in very small lettering compared to everything else, which similar to Breitbart, was a lot about Joe Biden and sort of conspiracy theories that he might be senile and things like that. But yeah, they actually had a legitimate news story that was decently written, decent reporting, and had basically the same information that the Associated Press article had. So hats off to you, One America. 
for this one thing that you did right. But going back to Fox News, what I noticed about the fact that they didn't report on it until sort of violence started to erupt from it, Fox seems to only want to cover world events if one of two things or both of them are true. Number one, Americans were involved somehow in a negative way. So like if Americans were killed or Americans were hurt or Americans were kidnapped or captured, then they'll report on it. And the other thing is if there's any sort of violence, particularly if there's any sort of similar violence to what's going on in the United States. You ever hear the old saying, if it bleeds, it leads? Well, Fox News seems to definitely take this mantra to heart. Like, I've noticed that most of the stuff Fox reports on, regardless of what's going on in the world, is of a political nature. And you know, they consider themselves sort of a political network, kind of like MSNBC does. So, you know, that's that's not surprising, especially when you start getting to Tucker Carlson and Hannity and things like that, that are very much opinion shows, sort of masquerading as news, but opinion shows nonetheless. So when you watch Fox News in the middle of the day, that's when they do sort of their actual quote unquote reporting. And I noticed that they don't report on world events unless... Americans are directly involved or there's some sort of violence happening that Americans can relate to. And so I think the reason why Fox decided to really report on it now is because Fox knows its viewers won't care. Because remember, we're in the conservative media bubble, America first and America only. So Fox knows its viewers aren't going to care about an international story, unless there's violence, unless America is somehow involved, even though the implications of this explosion that happened in Beirut could be world changing. They don't care. America is not directly involved. But now that there's violence, things just got a lot more interesting, didn't they? Because there's always something you need to be afraid of in the conservative media bubble. And right now, it's the protesters. Oh, I'm sorry. Not protesters. Agitators. Not protesters. Antifa. It's all about changing the narrative, folks. They just want to use these different words to make these people appear differently in your head than what they actually are. It really is doublespeak. It's 1984. Not protesters. Rioters. And Fox knows this, and they're doing their part to keep that conservative media bubble nice and tightly wrapped around the people who are in it. You can't leave, because if you do, the agitators and Antifa and rioters will get you. Be afraid. So anyway, that's just my little mini rant about coverage of the Beirut explosion, or lack thereof, in the conservative bubble. But anyway, there was other stuff that happened this week, but as far as the conservative bubble goes... There wasn't much. They mostly just spent the week talking again about Biden. And in fact, when I turned Fox News on about an hour before I started this podcast, the headline that I saw down there was something to the effect of Biden coming under fire for refusing to take cognitive test. And my response to that is in a world where we have a massive game changing explosion for an entire country, (laughs) 
and possibly a lot of the world. Why is it that Joe Biden not taking the basic cognitive test that Trump bragged about taking? Why is that the story? Why is the story not something more important, more immediate, like the pandemic? They barely talked about the pandemic at all in the couple of hours that I watched Fox News. It was mostly about Joe Biden and the one reporter they had in Beirut talking about all the rioting that was going on. And if you ask me, I think the reason they wanted to report on that was because it's so, to them anyway, closely mirrors the situation that we see in Portland. Like, they show these people who are actually, like, rioting and throwing stuff at police, and they have good reason to. You know, a bunch of people just died in a massive explosion, possibly the biggest non-nuclear explosion in the history of humanity. And the government could have prevented it years ago, and they did nothing. So, again, I think that's a pretty good reason to be up in arms against your government if they basically just don't care about safety of its citizens. But to equate what's going on there with what's going on in Portland, and again, this is part of the conservative media bubble strategy of... We want you to be afraid, and we want to constantly remind you what you need to be afraid of. To equate these two situations is completely wrong. And I'm not going to go into detail on why that is. I've already been over that in previous episodes. So anyway, I did want to move on from this awful situation and talk about something a little more lighthearted, shall we say. So... Because there wasn't much going on in the conservative bubble this week other than, you know, the usual Trump good, Biden bad, I wanted to expand my horizons a little bit and sort of dig a little deeper than I have previously into this conservative bubble. So I went ahead on Tuesday and listened to about an hour and a half or so of the Alex Jones Show on Infowars.com. And I don't know if I want to say I regret it or not, because as absolutely ridiculously insane as most of it was, it was entertaining. <laughs> There's no other way of putting it. It was actually quite entertaining to watch. Because, you know, it's technically a radio show that Alex Jones puts on. But if you go to the InfoWars website, they always have a link like staring you right in the face on the front page. Watch the Alex Jones show live. Even when it's not live, they're always rerunning it. So even if you, quote, miss an episode, and he has one, I believe, six days a week, you can go back and watch it pretty much any time as though it were live. But I actually watched it live for, as I said, about an hour and a half. And I learned a lot. And not in the way that, you know, you listen to an informative show and you learn things, but I learned a lot about the mindset of someone who's so deep into the conservative bubble that you really start getting into the things that even other conservatives might look at you and say, you're just crazy. So I turn on the Alex Jones show, and the first thing I see is Alex himself looking directly at the camera with that big beady-eyed stare that he loves to give people and saying, 
forgive my Alex Jones impression. It's not the best, but those are people over there. They're, they're coming for us. And I, I'm, I'm not a violent person. I'm not a violent person. But I, I tell you, if they came for me, I, I'd have to do something about it. And this just kind of is perpetuating right off the bat the be afraid of everything or not so much everything, but be afraid of something because fear is the only path forward. And Infowars not only preaches this doctrine, but it takes it several steps forward from what you think would be the limit for an ideology like this. Like, the conservative bubble in general says, be afraid of something, something's coming to get you. Infowars says, you must be completely petrified of this thing that's coming to get you, and believe me, it's coming to get you, and you're going to have to do something. You're going to have to fight back. And the way that you fight back is by purchasing all these fine products that you see in the InfoWars online store. <laughs> I'm not making this up, folks. Like, I'd say a good half of what I saw when I watched InfoWars for an hour and a half was just promos or segues into promos for stuff that the InfoWars channel sells. And they sell everything from just the usual, you know, t-shirts and tinfoil hats and maybe not that, but wouldn't surprise me. And, but the weirdest thing is they sell like, it's like a lifestyle brand almost. Kind of like Goop, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow's thing that she did. So they basically have their own version of Goop where they sell <laughs> supplements and charcoal activated toothpaste and all, all branded with either InfoWars or Alex Jones, or in the case of the charcoal-activated toothpaste, it's his father, who apparently is a dentist. But that sort of got me thinking, like, maybe InfoWars isn't so much like a legitimately political website as they are just trying to scam extremely right-wing people into buying stuff. And as InfoWars says in their tagline... It's a war for your mind, and the war they're fighting is just to make a profit. But anyway, going on to the actual substance of what he was talking about, um, there, there wasn't much. <laughs> I'll put it that way. So, um, the subject that he was on, for most of the time I was listening to him, was Bill Gates and the whole conspiracy theory that he wants to use the COVID-19 vaccine as a sneaky way to implant microchips into everybody. And he's working with the CDC and the government and maybe even Black Lives Matter to do it. And I mean, like, the further you go down this rabbit hole, the just absolutely crazier and crazier it gets. Like, you, you would think that, you know, from an outsider's perspective, but until you've been down that rabbit hole... Until you've actually experienced what these people actually believe, you, you just don't get it. <laughs> I, and I highly recommend that you all go check out the InfoWars website. As an outsider, I would definitely not recommend that you listen to them seriously like I'm trying to, because you might go insane. <laughs> but anyway, so Alex Jones was talking about how, in his words exactly, Bill Gates wants to rape your DNA. I, I can't say that with a straight face. Like, I don't know how he does it, honestly. But as he was talking about this, 
he went to the phones. So this is, you know, it's a radio show. So he has people call in. And it was interesting because the people that called in, the vast majority of them, I would say, didn't really talk too much about Bill Gates. Instead, they talked a lot about God and Christianity and being a God-fearing man. And I just thought that was really interesting because one of the hallmarks of being a quote-unquote true conservative is that you're a God-fearing man, that you are a devout religious practitioner of Protestant Christianity. And of course, being a Christian does not necessarily equate with being a conservative. In fact, my thesis paper in college when I got my political science degree was about the hypothesis of whether being a devout Christian makes you more likely to be a conservative. And what I found was that if you're Christian, you're more likely to be a conservative. And if you're conservative, you're more likely to be a Christian. But those two states of being don't necessarily coordinate or correlate with one another. So they're connected, but they're not connected, if that makes any sense to you. But anyway, being religious does not necessarily make you a conservative, but being relig- being like super devoutly religious makes you more likely to be a very strong-minded conservative. And it seems like that's the kind of people that InfoWars tries to attract because pretty much all the callers that I listened to said something to the effect of, I'm a God-fearing man. This is the time of the Antichrist. You know, we're inviting God's judgment by letting Bill Gates do these terrible things with the vaccines and that... Pizzagate was just the beginning, and yeah, a lot, a lot of QAnon callers coming in. Oh boy, don't even get me started on QAnon. But yeah, a lot of QAnon callers coming in, like, oh, Pizzagate was just the beginning, and we're going to get those lying, cheating, pedophiliac, Satan-worshipping bastards that call themselves politicians, and we'd better prepare ourselves now because the second coming of Christ is coming soon. And there's going to be judgment on everybody, and we need to be afraid. Yeah, there was plenty of that. And even when there wasn't callers, and he'd have like guests on or just talk himself, it was almost like a rundown of all the crazy conservative conspiracy theories. I mean, you had elements of the Bill Gates thing, you had elements of QAnon, you had elements of the deep state democratic conspiracy. And the most interesting thing was most of the commercials on InfoWars while Alex Jones was on break were either, again, promos for stuff in the InfoWars store or some sort of slickly produced political ad that was sort of like something you'd see from a super PAC, but much less fact-based and much more emotion-based geared towards people of the extreme right. And so there are two of these in particular that I remember, and one of them will be the weirdest thing I saw this week, so I'll save that for later. But the other one was like a super like high-quality 
lots of special effects and explosions and slick transitions and sort of a badass sounding voiceover like, this is the time for us to rise up in opposition, you know, that kind of thing. And the entire thing was set to sort of a modern style cover of Linkin Park's In the End. And I wish I could find it, but I'm sure that if you guys go on to InfoWars and watch Alex Jones's show for long enough, something like it or even the ad itself will pop up for you. But it was just interesting. Like, it really sort of lifted Trump up and presented him almost as a supernatural figure, like like a hero that we could all aspire to. And just it was all these pictures and videos of him looking all tough and presidential and the American flag waving behind him in the breeze. And it was quite extraordinary because, I mean, Fox News does that to some extent, but never have I seen any other outlet treat Trump almost like a god king, you know? That's the only way I can really put it. It treats him as though he really is above everybody else. And that that's something we should aspire to, to put him above everybody else. But anyway, that's all I really got. There wasn't much substance in what Alex Jones says. No surprise there. But that's basically all I was able to get this week because not a lot happened in the conservative media world. It was a fairly uneventful week. So... What did happen this week, though, outside of the conservative media bubble, and they didn't talk about it at all, and I guess for good reason, because it would make him Trump look bad, is the interview that Trump did with Axios TV that was released on Tuesday on HBO. So I'm going to talk about that as my one event to focus on this week. And if you haven't seen it, I highly, highly recommend that you go watch it. Not just because it makes Trump look bad, but because it really offers sort of an insight into Trump's mindset and what he might do if he ever gets cornered, shall we say? If he ever gets outsmarted? If somebody sort of turns his own lies against him, like the interviewer did? And I'll get into that as I go along, but... It really sort of is eye-opening how much he changes when he realizes he's losing. And this interviewer was the most effective one I have ever seen in all the interviews that Trump has done. And because he was so effective in his interviewing technique, he made Trump look really bad. He made him look weak. He made him look childish. He made him look completely just out of touch. And the reason this happened was quite simple. He did one thing that most interviewers that I've seen with Trump never do. He asked simple, reasonable, logical, quick follow-up questions. Basically, he didn't let Trump's mangling of the facts slide. He didn't let Trump try to change the subject. When Trump tried to say something that was like a hyperbole or falsely, maybe falsely, probably falsely attributing his statements to other people, like, you know, many people have said this, the interviewer would say something like, what people? Who are these people? 
I've never heard of them. Why have you never talked to them? Why can't you refer to them directly? You know, just logical, simple follow-up questions that were he telling the truth or knew what he was talking about, he'd be able to answer pretty quickly. But he doesn't. Instead, he tries to just veer off on another topic. And the way Trump is typically able to sort of weasel his way out of tough questions in interviews like this is by going off on different tangents. Like, for example, an interviewer might start with a question about Joe Biden, like saying, is Joe Biden mentally fit to be president? And Trump, in an effort to avoid directly answering the question for fear that it might make him look bad, will go into a rant about how the Democrats were spying on my campaign and will be like, but I have the best economy in the whole world. I have the best economy in the history of the United States. No one's ever done more for the economy than me. And by the way, we're still on a question about Joe Biden. He hasn't mentioned him at all. So my point is that when he's asked a hard question or a question that he doesn't want to answer truthfully or straight, he'll go off on a different tangent. He'll change the subject and just start ranting about that subject, usually something good about himself or what he's done. And most of the time, the interviewers sort of just let it go. They just keep going with that topic. They'll be like, well, yes, I did want to ask you about this topic. And they won't go back to whatever hard question that he didn't want to answer. So in that respect, that's how Trump sort of wins interviews, if you will. But this guy, he wasn't having any of that. Whenever Trump would say something like that, he would basically just respectfully, but turn him right back around to that question that he wanted Trump to answer. Whereas Fox interviewers will typically just let him do this, let him carry them off onto a different subject and kind of just wait for him to finish and then move on to the next question in the interview. And side note here, that's sort of what I'm worried about what might happen in the debates, because the debates are sort of like those Fox interviews. They're very structured. They're very uh, straightforward. They don't have a lot of room for actual debate. It's just one person talks, has a certain amount of time. Next person has a certain amount of time. And then usually they let the other person respond. And that's it. They move on. You can't have the two candidates actually discussing anything. And that's what I would very much like to see change about the debates. I want them less Lincoln-Douglas and more sort of town hall forums, you know, more, more talk show where you just have the two candidates on a couch together or maybe on separate couches talking back and forth to each other about the issues. And if they did that, I can guarantee you Trump would lose all three of those debates badly. And this interview that he did with Axios is living proof of that. Because this interviewer wouldn't let Trump off the hook for these, for lack of a better term, BS answers that he was giving him. And whenever he would try to change the subject, he'd say, but sir, let me finish. And then he'd be like, yes, I know you talked about this and that's great. But what I was referring to, and he would sort of just loop it right back into the original question he wanted to ask. And then Trump would use the hyperbole thing. Like, no one's done more for black people than me. He's like, you know, are you sure about that? Like more than Lyndon Johnson, who, you know, passed the Civil Rights Act. Are you sure about that? 
And as a result of just this very simple, logical line of questioning that the interviewer gave him, Trump, for the most part, came off as babbling, nonsensical, and delusional. And it didn't help that whenever Trump would, you know, give him an answer like that, they'd show the interviewer's face and he would just be completely wide-eyed and in disbelief like, oh my gosh, did he really just say that? But anyway, so I'll start just with the very beginning. Trump walked into the room with sort of a stern and pissed off look on his face like, I don't really want to be here. Like, do we have to do this? And he had a bunch of papers in his hand, and I was thinking to myself, like, who brings paper to an interview? Like, why would you bring papers? Isn't it supposed to just be something where, you know, you sit down and have a little informal chat about the state of things in America? Why would you bring papers? And, of course, he answered that question later on when he tried to show the interviewer the charts that he'd printed out saying that America was number one in everything. And, again, the interviewer just said, but that's not what we're concerned about. We're concerned about the fact that testing isn't up to par, and we're concerned about the fact that over a 1,000 people a day are dying of COVID-19. And Trump's response was to basically just say, oh, you can't do that. And the interviewer, to his credit, didn't let that slide. He's like, well, why can't I do that? Why can't we measure death as a percentage of population? Because this is what's important. A larger percentage of population per 100 people are dying from COVID than anywhere else in the world in the United States. And Trump would say, oh, well, that's just wrong. Yes, it's the fake news. That's wrong. Once again, going with the conservative bubble of there are no facts, but are facts, and all other facts are not facts. But anyway, Trump started the interview by sort of talking a little bit about his mantra of positivity, so to speak, and how he tries to look at the plus side and everything, but always prepares for the negative side of everything, too. And it took him all of three seconds to start with his first hyperbole of we've just done an incredible job on COVID-19 and basically talk about how it was China's fault that everything got as bad as it was and Europe's doing a lot worse, even though they're not. And it's almost as though at the beginning of this interview, he was trying to sort of preempt any criticism of how he's handled the pandemic a lot of what he said was something to the effect of you know look what i did with this pandemic we had the greatest response in the world nobody else has done what we've done and again with with the hyperbole that's a classic trumpism and the interviewer's response to that was perfect i, I can't say it any other way it was perfect he basically just told trump you know positivity is a good thing to have and I'm glad that you look at the bright side of things. But, you know, people in this country know that this virus isn't under control. You say that it's under control, but a thousand people are dying a day. Cases are still rising across the United States. You know, what do you think of that? And he responded by once again blaming downsizing China, claiming that other countries were worse, and that people say that we've done incredible. And follow-up question, who says that? Now, it's very important that you think about how important it is that the interviewer asked that follow-up question. Because he loves to say that. Like, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people say that we've done an incredible job. A lot of people say that it was China's fault. A lot of people say that Europe is doing terrible. And the, the interviewer basically just said, okay, 
And you say a lot of people say that. Who are these people? And what have they said? And in doing so, like he sort of tried to admonish Trump for having the rally in Tulsa in the middle of a pandemic when you're not supposed to be gathering large crowds of people. And Trump's response, it was almost as though he didn't even realize what the question was asking. Rather than talk about how, yeah, we tried to make everything safe, he talked about how there were 12,000 people in the crowd, not 6,000, and it was the highest rated speech of anybody ever given on Fox News. So rather than talk about the pandemic, which is what the question was about, he talked about his ratings and he talked about the crowd size. Both brags, of course, because that's what Trump does. But the interesting thing was that he sort of let Trump go off on this tangent at first. But once Trump finished his thought and actually let the interviewer get a word in, he actually sort of he started by saying, yeah, you're right. You have big crowds and I'm not debating that the people who follow you don't listen to you. They love you. But that's not the issue here. The issue is the fact that you had the huge crowd here in the middle of a pandemic as cases were going up and the fact that you are sort of completely denying that this is a problem. Like, how do you respond to that? And this sort of turning Trump's response right back on him and sort of doubling down on the original question, in my opinion, is absolutely brilliant. And Trump, you could see it in his face. He's just clearly completely confounded by the fact that this interviewer has turned his question back on him. And all he's able to muster is like, you know, just saying, oh, the virus is under control. We're doing a great job. And the interviewer just says one response to that. How? How is it under control? How is a thousand deaths a day and almost five million cases under control? Like your logic makes no sense. And from that came, of course, the most telling response of Trump's entire interview which was, it is what it is. And that's sort of how Trump's handled the pandemic in general because he's trying to get reelected and he wants to try and focus on the economy rather than on the pandemic because his response has been so bad. So his response to the pandemic, when anyone asks about it, oh yeah, it's terrible, but it is what it is. And to his credit, the interviewer actually sort of followed up on that by saying, Okay, if it is what it is, you're, is that, does that mean you're saying that we've responded as well as we could have? You don't think we could have done better? And Trump kind of danced around it like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he didn't really have a straight answer for that. Instead, he tried to blame the governors and basically said something to the effect of, there are some good governors and some bad governors. I can tell you which ones are good and which ones are bad. But the governors... They, they've, they've gotten it under, con the good ones have gotten it under control and everything is going really well. No one's responded better to the pandemic than us and just kind of tried to initiate this loop of no one's done better than me. I've done more than anybody else. And this is the greatest pandemic response in the history of humanity, except for the Democratic governors. They're the ones that caused all the problems. And speaking of problems, one problem that he really loves to talk about even outside interview settings is testing, particularly why there's too much of it. And the first thing he said when the interviewer asked him about testing was, 
We've done more testing than anybody else, and there can be too much testing. And then he said something that I'll probably never forget as long as I live, and especially because of the interviewer's response to it. He says, you know, read the books, read the manuals. There can be too much testing. And the interviewer just immediately just seized on that with what I can only describe as a wide-eyed, oh, my God, did he really just say that look in his eyes? And he said, what books? What manuals? And Trump's response was to say just a lot of books, a lot of manuals. They've said that there can be too much testing. And again, he completely disarmed Trump's rambling answer by asking one simple follow-up question, and it all went downhill for Trump after that. And the interesting thing is, it seemed like about a third of the way through the interview at this point, Trump sort of realized that the interviewer was derailing him by asking him these questions, and so his response to that was to make sure just that the interviewer couldn't talk at all for minutes at a time. So Trump would say something like, you know, no one's done better at handling coronavirus than we have, than I have. And the interviewer would say, well, who's been saying that? And he would start to say it, and then Trump would just stop and be like, excuse, excuse me, let me finish. And over the course of the interview, I sort of noticed that the term, excuse me, let me finish, he'd always say it, whenever the interviewer would ask him another question like that, like a simple follow-up question, and he wouldn't let the interviewer talk again until he wouldn't ask that question anymore. So, excuse me, let me finish, is sort of a code word for, I won't let you get a word in because it contradicts me. And... This brings me to my personal favorite part of the interview, which is when Trump brought out the charts. That's right. Remember those papers that I mentioned at the beginning of the interview? Those were actually charts that he brought with him in preparation for the possibility that the interviewer asked him about the tests and the charts and the statistics that he was getting that gave him such a rosy outlook on COVID-19. So Trump actually gave him these charts and said something to the effect of, look at these charts. They say the U.S. is number one in COVID death rate. The U.S. is number one in COVID response and testing. And he's like, you know, oh yeah, we're, we are number one in testing. That's great. But these charts that you're looking at, they say that number one, the U.S. is number one in COVID deaths in proportion to number of tests. What we're talking about is COVID deaths in proportion to the population. And in that response... The U.S. is much, much worse than most other countries. You know, what do you think of that? And on being asked to measure death in regards to population rather than testing, Trump basically just gave up and flat out said, you can't do that. You can't use these measurements because they're not right. It's fake news. The facts are wrong. Don't listen to the facts, only listen to me. And it's almost as if Trump had sort of a mini freakout because the interviewer wouldn't see things his way. And to sort of hammer this point home, when the interviewer confronts him about South Korea, after Trump once again says we've had the best COVID response, he says, you know, South Korea has 50 million people and they've only had 300 people die from COVID. 
Trump's response, similarly, is to say, you don't know that. You don't know if those facts are right. And his response, so you think they're faking stats. Again, turning Trump's own complete BS answer for the question right back on him and, you know, forcing him to sort of answer to it. And then Trump did probably the most telling thing that I've ever seen him do in any interview. And it was so simple, but at the same time, told me so much about his state of mind. He said one thing, and it wasn't even a word. It was just, uh... And it wasn't so much him saying, uh... Because, I mean, everybody says, uh... And, in fact, Fox News makes fun of Joe Biden for saying, uh, and um, and all that. So that's not what I'm sort of harping on here. It's the fact that when he said it, he sort of looked away from the camera, looked up, and you could almost see the gears turning in his head. Like, oh my gosh, this guy's making me confront my own BS. How do I respond to it? And it took him a couple of seconds to sort of try and figure out how most, how most effectively to respond to it. And when he finally started talking again, he again tried to change the subject. He basically said, oh, well, I have a very good relationship with South Korea and you're not reporting things correctly. And when Trump starts doing this, tries to change the subject and basically completely ignore the stuff that's been coming out of his mouth for the last half minute, the look on the interviewer's face is absolutely perfect. It's memeable. For those of you who watch the video, it's at about 15 minutes in. You'll see just this wide-eyed, mouth slightly open, like, is this guy for real? Is this really what he's doing? (laughs) And this is coming from an interviewer who supposedly has a pretty good relationship with Trump, like he's been reporting on him for years. Part of sort of the White House press corps inner circle, if you will. And... If he's the one who's asking these follow-up questions and having this reaction, you can imagine a way that a Putin might feel or a Kim Jong-un. He might look at that and say, this guy gets bewildered whenever his reality is questioned. We can use that to our advantage. And he actually does get into subjects like Russia in the rest of the interview. And I won't go into much more detail, but my point is, is that Putin and other adversaries of the U.S. can use the fact that Trump doesn't like facts to their advantage. They can basically shape the reality around whatever issue they're trying to get the president on their side on and say, you know, don't believe what the left-wing media says. This is the facts about the situation. And I think this might be why, you know, back in 2017, Trump sided with Putin over our own intelligence apparatus in saying that they didn't hack the 2016 election. And this might be why Putin seems to have such a stranglehold on Trump when it comes to foreign policy, particularly on Russia and the Middle East. He knows how to push Trump's buttons. He can say something like, you know, don't listen to what the liberal media over there is telling you. They're wrong. 
they're just part of the democratic deep state that's trying to uh, take you out of office and delegitimize you. And only listen to me. I'm the one that has the right facts. You know, basically just pandering to that basic instinct of they're wrong. They're out to get you. I'm not. I mean, it's that simple. And one last thing about the interview that I want to mention before I get to the weirdest thing I saw this week. At the very end, uh, the interviewer asked about John Lewis, the congressman and civil rights activist who rightfully has a very important place in the history book as a civil rights activist. So he asked about John Lewis and what he thought of him. Trump's response was to say, well, John Lewis, he, he didn't attend my inauguration and he didn't attend any of my speeches. And to his credit, the interviewer, you know, understandably flabbergasted by this response, just said, but what about his legacy? What about what he did? Again, he didn't attend my inauguration. And then um, the interviewer asked, do you find John Lewis impressive? Which, of course, anyone with a brain should, like given all the things he did for civil rights and humanity in general. And all that he went through throughout his life, trying to, you know, get equality for African Americans and for minorities. But he asked, you know, do you find John Lewis impressive? And Trump's response was to say, well, I find a lot of people impressive. And then he went back to, he didn't attend my inauguration. And so I have a theory. And it's actually quite simple. Donald Trump does not know who John Lewis is. And actually, when the interviewer sort of pressed him on, you know, what did you like about John Lewis or did you find him impressive or, you know, what do you think his legacy is going to be? Trump danced around the question and did what I was saying earlier. The, uh, Again, I'm not faulting him for saying uh, it's the way in which he said it, the context in which he said it, and the fact that. It was definitely sort of a reset on his brain trying to sort of wrap his head around, okay, how do I attack this without sounding like a complete idiot? The irony being, of course, that he already did. But I think Trump only knew about John Lewis what Fox News said about him after he died, which was that he was a congressman and a civil rights activist. And this was coming from the guy who, not long before this question in the interview, had said that he's done more for black people than any other president except maybe Abraham Lincoln. And the interviewer's response to that, of course, is, but what about Lyndon Johnson? And he's like, well, what about Lyndon Johnson? He passed the Civil Rights Act. Oh, well, yeah, I've done more than him. You've done more than Lyndon Johnson who passed the Civil Rights Act. <laughs> and just the back and forth between them was absolutely classic. And I highly recommend that you all go and watch the whole interview. It's available for free. You can go on YouTube and type in Trump Axios interview, and it'll be the first thing that pops up. And the interesting thing, and I'll close it out with this, is this was such a huge deal for every media outlet except the ones on the right. If all you're watching is Fox News or One America or InfoWars or anything like that, 
you wouldn't even know that this interview existed. They haven't mentioned it a single time in all the time I've been watching conservative media this week. And I mean, that's not surprising because anyone who watches it, even a Republican, would notice that it made Trump look like a complete idiot. And so if you're wondering how the conservative bubble presented this very eye-opening interview with Axios, the answer is they didn't. So with that said, let's go ahead and move on to the weirdest thing that I saw this week. So this week's award, as I said earlier in the show, goes to InfoWars. And it's not so much something that InfoWars themselves did, but something that I saw while waiting on a commercial break for the Alex Jones show to come back. So as I said earlier, they like to run flashy sort of political ad, super PAC style things that basically just reinforce the conservative viewpoint. So this particular ad that I saw, it started pretty inconspicuously, actually. It started with a black and white shot of a nose and mouth and a dude sneezing. It was kind of gross, but basically talking about how the pandemic has changed the way we interact with other people. Everyone is concerned about the pandemic and what impact it will have on American society. And, you know, it just goes like this for maybe 10, 15 seconds with the gross slow-mo shots of people sneezing in black and white. And then the good stuff starts. Screen kind of fades to black and then the voiceover becomes a lot more positive. And it's like, and that's why we recommend purchasing a firearm. And like... The screen kind of like goes to sort of a montage of people like firing and brandishing guns. And I'm just like, wait, what? Did they just equate the pandemic with buying a gun? <laughs> but wait, it gets better. So after this, they start showing a graph of like all these different firing rates and FPSs of different assault rifles and pistols and bullets and such. And the voiceover says a bullet travels much faster than a sneeze from covid and at the bottom of the graph there's the sneeze from covid at sitting at you know 15 20 miles an hour and then after that they show a graphic of a person sneezing maybe like six to eight feet and the voiceover comes in with and owning a gun allows you to protect yourself and your family while maintaining social distancing and there's another guy who appears at the end of the graphic about 65 feet away and he shoots the COVID guy in the head with a pistol. And that's sort of the ad in a nutshell, but it was absolutely amazing. Like, I'm sitting here sort of thinking, like, this is absolutely ludicrous. It's insane that they would equate buying a gun with the pandemic and advocate for shooting people who have COVID. But at the same time, it's so slickly presented. The editing is fantastic. The voiceover work is on par with Hollywood movie trailers. And when you watch it, it's just like, you know, what they're talking about doesn't seem like it's so out of the realm of possibility. It's sort of like, it's crazy like a fox, you know? They know how to market to their audience and it's clear that their audience eats it up like crazy because they wouldn't run an ad like that on anywhere but somewhere like InfoWars because that's the only real place 
where anyone would take it seriously. But that's the ad for you folks. I tried to find it so that I could play a clip of it on the show, but unfortunately I wasn't able to. So if you can stand the craziness that is InfoWars, you can go on their website, listen to the Alex Jones show, and maybe it'll pop up at some point. But I just when I saw that, I just had to relay it. It was definitely the weirdest thing that I saw this week. All right, folks, I want to thank you for joining me for this edition of the Undercover Bubble Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe and feel free to follow my Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. Have a good one, folks. See you next time.